Praise the Lord. I am Rajat and you are listening to Biblical Demand Podcast where we discuss and answer difficult questions raised against the Bible, God and the Christian faith. In the Gospel according to Apostle John chapter 8 verse 32, Jesus said, "And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free." Amen. So let's get started. Welcome to Biblical Demand and today our guest is Ray Comfort. It's a joy to have you. Well, it's a joy to be on your program. Thanks for having me. So be- before we begin, so I want to know your story that how did you come to know Jesus? Yeah, it was way back, and uh, you might notice I have a slight accent. That's because I'm from New Zealand, down under. I've been living in Southern California for I think 31 years, but I was born twice in New Zealand. I a uh, very successful young businessman, uh, very happy, and yet just like Solomon, I could see that death made life absolutely futile. It doesn't matter what you attain, what happiness you get. Along comes the grim reaper and slices you in two. And it didn't make sense. And I remember one night back in 1972, or <clears throat> 1971, late 1971, I just cried out. I wasn't crying out to God. I was just saying, "Why? It just doesn't make sense." That 10 out of 10 died. Six months later, I, I was on a surfing trip with a buddy who was a Christian, and I opened his Bible and read the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her. has committed adultery already with her in his heart and I thought you're kidding does god see my thought life and that was my big revelation to know that god saw what i was thinking and i thought man if there's going to be a judgment day i'll be guilty and end up in hell and that knowledge made me or prepared me for an understanding of the cross i broke god's law the 10 commandments jesus paid the fine on the cross that means god could dismiss my case because of the death and resurrection of a savior So that night way back in April the 24th 1972 1:30 in the morning I cried out to God say God please forgive me I put my faith in Jesus and I passed from death to life became became a brand new creature in Christ and immediately began sharing the gospel through gospel tracts with people I purchased a large bus and put scripture around it I had sign writing put on my car telling people to turn to Christ I put a billboard outside our home I put scripture on the front window of our uh my business. Um I put a soapbox in the local uh city square and began preaching the gospel. I purchased a uh, a large printing press and put it in my home and began to preach gospel tracts. So if anyone can be considered a religious nut uh in those days it was me. Nowadays I'm much worse. Uh I I'm more zealous than I ever was. because I've found everlasting life and I want to share it with those who are sitting in the shadow of death. So that's basically my testimony. Wow, that's pretty uh, wonderful to hear that that one verse particular that one verse that if you look at a woman with a lustful eyes you have already committed adultery. Wow, amazing and after that uh, I I have seen your videos on YouTube and you're really doing a good job and I mean you're preaching the gospel very boldly and confidently on the stage. So that's something I've learned from you. So moving on that you speak a lot on uh, atheism and evolution even you have made a film on it evolution versus god so how do you respond to such question when people say and um, atheists say nothing created everything yeah they normally don't say nothing created everything they say everything came from nothing which is completely different from what they actually believe if someone says there's no god there's no creator there's no beginning no prime mover they're saying that nothing was the creative force that brought everything into being flowers and birds and trees and seasons and 
puppies and kittens and fruits and bananas. All sorts of things just happen because nothing created it, which is insane. That's what the Bible calls the atheist a fool. It's scientifically impossible for nothing to create anything because it's nothing. And we shouldn't even have to explain that to anyone who's got a brain between their ears. But you have to explain it to atheists. And the issue with atheism isn't uh, the existence of God. And not, it's not an intellectual argument. It's a moral argument. They don't want to find God for the same reason a thief doesn't want to find a policeman. They're like Adam hiding from God in the, and the bush they hide behind is the foolish bush, the very transparent bush of atheism so that they can fornicate with their girlfriend and watch pornography without qualms of conscience because if God doesn't exist, there's no moral responsibility and whatever you want to do, you can do. So atheism is extremely convenient and it's very important if you want to reach an atheist not to address his intellect, instead go, go for his conscience. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me just share something very important, if I may. Yeah. About a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, I discovered something that was life-changing. I discovered that I was cracking eggs wrongly. I was cracking eggs incorrectly. When I, when I cracked an egg, I take an egg and go to the edge of the frying pan and go on the edge and drop the egg in. That is completely wrong. And this is why. God has placed a membrane on the inside of the shell. And the membrane holds onto the shell. So if you crack it on a sharp edge, like the edge of a frying pan, you're going to break the membrane and get shell in your egg. And that's nice, not nice when you're eating an omelet. The correct thing to do is break the egg on a flat surface. That means the membrane stays whole, holds onto the shell, and you don't end up with a distasteful experience of having a shell in your egg. Sinners are hard shells to crack, but there's a right way and a wrong way to crack them. The way, when I say hard shells, that's because their natural mind is in a place of hostility towards God. They use their creator's name as a cuss word. They hate God without cause. They're angry at God. Their natural mind is in a place of enmity. So you want to crack them the correct way, and the correct way isn't to go for the intellect because you're gonna get arguments. If you say, here's proof God exists, there's hypocrites in the church, I'll tell you why. Evolution's not true, I'll tell you why. All that is to do with the intellect, and it's okay, but it's not gonna get where you want to go. What you wanna do is address the conscience as Jesus did. That brings them onto a level playing field. So you can have somebody who is contentious and argumentative and says the church is full of hypocrites. What about the Catholic church? What about the Protestant church? What about the hypocrites? And they're argumentative. You just say to them, do you think you're a good person? And he says, yeah, I'm a good person. Say, so can I address your conscience rather than your intellect? And you say, go ahead. And that's when you say, how many lies have you told? Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever looked with lust? Have you used God's name in vain? And what you're doing is that you're addressing the area of the mind that confirms the truth of the commandments. Romans 2 verse 15 says, which show the work of the law, that's the commandments, written upon the heart, the conscience bearing witness. Conscience means with knowledge. So everyone who lies, steals, lusts, fornicates, commits adultery, does it with knowledge that it's wrong. And that's how to prepare them for the cross. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did in Romans 2. And that'll change your life even more so than finding out how to crack an egg correctly. Well, absolutely correct. And you make a point that here that the problem is not the intellectual one, but the moral one. You know, people uh, on the morality, they just 
they don't want to talk about god intellectually the conversation may go somewhere i can bring right uh, good arguments they will bring the good arguments but when it comes to morality that's that's the thing we need to uh, talk and yeah and that's what bible talks about the morality that we are immoral people right right yeah yes absolutely that conscience is like an ally right in the heart of the enemy he doesn't know that it's there the atheist or the unbeliever hasn't got a clue how powerful his conscience is but god's intuitively given it to him like a judge an impartial judge on the courtroom of the mind who's going to say guilty guilty and it's so powerful it drives many to drink drives some to suicide the power of guilt the guilty conscience and the correct thing for it to do is to drive us to the foot of the cross, not to drink, not to suicide, but to the foot of the cross. The Bible says the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And when the conscience is provoked, it's stirred and it acts as an accuser to say, ah, the commandments are right. You're in big trouble on judgment day. You're heading for hell. You need a savior and God's provided one through Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to other religions, that other religions also talk about love and peace, and their followers believe that this is true, this their religion and their worldview is true. And on the other hand, Christianity claims that Christianity is the true, true uh, worldview and the right worldview. So if Christianity is true, then what about the other religions? Yeah, it's a good question and one we must approach with tremendous sensitivity because every human being has got this thing in them they don't like to be told they're wrong. If you want to wreck an argument just say to someone well you're wrong now that's not a good thing to do there's a something called discretion where you can get around it and say it some other way and so when i talk about other religions i never put them down i just say the big difference between islam hinduism buddhism and all the great religions the big religions is that christianity is not works righteousness and by that i mean if you study hinduism buddhism and all the big isms you'll find they know that God has everlasting life. We're in death. And they think they have to somehow please God by their religious works. And when God's pleased, he'll let them live forever. You ask a Muslim, say, you're going to make it to heaven? They say, I, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping God allows me in. I'm hoping my repentance works. I'm hoping my good religious works work, my prayer, my fasting, all these things. They're trying to attain salvation by their works. The thing that makes the difference is the moral law. When you bring the Ten Commandments into play and show God as being a judge, not just the creator of the universe, but the judge of the universe, a perfectly holy and righteous judge, then anything you offer a judge isn't good works. It's a detestable act of bribery. You'd be in a court of law. And if you're guilty of a terrible crime and you say, judge, I just want to slide your $20 across the table, that's going to get you in a worse trouble. Don't even think of doing that. And so religious works are trying to slide God money across the table, a bribery, a sacrifice to say, God, I'm giving you this, therefore you let me live forever. And it's not going to work. It doesn't work in a court of law if it's a good judge and it won't work on judgment day. This is what the Bible says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God. That means it's extremely detestable to God to try and bribe him with our good works. And so that leaves us in big trouble, all of us. I thought that I would get to heaven if I was a good person. That's works righteousness. That's trying to earn God's favor. What happened in Christ 
is that the judge came down to the criminal and paid the fine himself. That's what happened in Jesus. The Bible says God was in Christ, bringing the world back to himself. And so the judge has been made happy because the law has been paid the fine when Jesus died. So this is good news for an atheist, for a Hindu, for a Muslim, for um, anybody who wants to live forever. That means that salvation, eternal life, is a free gift of God. It comes by God's amazing grace or his unmerited favor or his mercy. If you're in court and you're guilty and you've got no means of justification, what you do if you're wise is you humbly throw yourself on the mercy of the judge. Say, judge, I'm guilty. I've got no excuse. I'm really sorry. Please be merciful to me if you would. And the Bible says God is rich in mercy to all that call upon him. No matter who it is, no matter what religion, if you want to live forever, that comes by God's mercy and not by us trying to earn everlasting life. And so if you share that with a Muslim, often he can take it and say, yeah, that makes sense that the creator provided a means for us to be forgiven rather than us trying to earn it. Yeah. Oh, so, so we're not better than any of the religions. We are certainly better off because of God's mercy. It's like a man in a plane who's wearing a parachute is not better than a man who's not wearing a parachute, but he's certainly better off because of the parachute he wears. Correct. So that is the one difference that God provided a way for the salvation. Instead, we are trying through our works to get the salvation. So that is the uh, major and the foundation uh, difference between Christianity and all other religions, right? Great. Right. Yeah. So Jesus is the, that way. Jesus, God sacrificed his only son so that we may have an internal life. So great. So moving on to this thing called we sin, we all have sinned. Bible claims that we all have sinned and we are short of God's glory, right? And if God is all just, then how can he possibly punish us for what Adam did? I mean, this question comes. Well, God doesn't punish us for what Adam did. He punishes us for what we have done. We have inherited a sinful nature. And if you want to blame Adam and say, I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to be created. I've, I've inherited a sinful nature. I love to sin and it's not my fault. Well, try that in a court of law. Say, judge, I know I raped the woman, but I want to tell you it's not my fault. It's God's fault for making me like this because I inherited the sin of Adam. You know, the judge is done. He's going to send you to jail because he holds you responsible for breaking the law, no matter who you and whatever you inherited, because you made a decision to do that, which is morally wrong. And God's exactly the same. He won't punish us for the crimes of Adam. He'll punish us for anger, hatred, greed, lust, pride, envy, jealousy, ingratitude, murder, rape, adultery. All those things are sins in God's eyes. And because he's good, he must punish sin. You know, one of the greatest revelations I, am, I ever understood was that it's God's goodness that sends us to hell. That sounds really weird, but we have an incident in the book of Exodus where Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory and live. And that's because God is so holy, his righteous anger would spill on us and kill us if we stood in his presence. And let me try and make that understandable by using analogy in a court of law. Imagine a man rapes three teenage girls and then cuts their throats and then cuts up their bodies and feeds them to hungry dogs. And there's no evidence, but he gets caught. 
What's the judge's attitude going to be towards that heinous criminal? Is it going to be passivity? Oh, not if he's good. He's going to be furious if he's good. The more good the judge is, the more furious he's going to be. He's going to bring that gavel down and send him to the electric chair, and he'll do it with anger because of such a heinous crime. So his fury will be in direct proportion to his goodness. And the Bible says God is good. And listen to what God said to Moses when he said, I'm going to let you see my glory. He said, I'm going to let my goodness pass you by. He didn't say, I'm going to let my glory. He's going, to, I'm going to let my goodness pass you by, and I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. And then when, after I've left, you can look on where I've been. And he did. And his face so shone with the glory of God, the children of Israel couldn't look on Moses' face because it shone with God's glory because he had looked on God's goodness at where he had been. And so if we stood in the presence of God's goodness, he would justly kill us because of our heinous crimes against his law. He is that holy. And that's why Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Only way you could ever stand in God's presence is if you're pure in heart. And none of us are pure in heart. We've all got a multitude of sins. And if we die in our sins, it's God's goodness that will see that justice is done. And so that should put the fear of God into the best of us and made us, make us say, wow, I need to be sheltered in the cleft of a rock. And Jesus is the rock that God provided. And we shelter in him from his wrath on judgment day. Yeah, I think it totally makes sense and absolutely right that God does not punish us because of Adam's sins. He punishes because, or doesn't punish us, he just, his wrath is on our own uh, immorality, wrongdoings, as you say, lust, adultery, uh, adultery, fornication, pride, anger. It's absolutely correct. And uh, the presence of God is so, is so, I mean, we can't express in word that. Uh, we can't, as you said, in the, as Exodus says, Moses, uh, Lord said that uh, you can't be alive if you see me because he's so much full of glory and we are, we are sinners and we actually cannot stand before our God unless we are with pure heart. That really makes sense. And uh, yes, so God doesn't punish us because of Adam's sins. He punishes us because for what we have done against God. So moving on to this question that... Uh, we talk about the heaven and the hell. And the, if a rational person or a critic would say, nobody has seen heaven and hell, how do you know heaven and hell exist? Because we have the greatest authority on this earth. If you've got the word of a governor, you've got a strong word. If you've got the word of a president, that's a strong word. Word of a king, even stronger. The word of God is the ultimate authority. And Jesus spoke of hell many times. And it's not just the thought of um, the Bible says it, therefore I believe it. Common sense tells us this. I wrote a book called Hitler, God, and the Bible. And when I began to study the Holocaust, I had in the back of my mind, which I always have had, and I think it's natural to have it, is how could God create a place like hell? That's just so fearful. How could God create hell? But after watching what, Nazi Germany did to the Jews and homosexuals and blacks and gypsies, how they slaughtered families in such cruel, cruel ways. I came out of that saying, how could there not be a hell? If God is good, if he's just, if he's righteous, there must be a place of retribution. Could you imagine if 
America or India or one of these countries around the world decided they would stop having courts and judges and police and prisons. Just don't punish anybody. That would be horrific. That's when you'd see how terrible mankind is. If any man could rape a woman and kill her and he didn't get brought to justice, that would be a terrible, terrible thing to happen because as human beings, we're not like dogs or cats or giraffes or horses or cows. We believe in justice and truth and we pay billions of dollars each year to make sure that justice is done. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And so if we believe in justice and prisons and punishment, which is what a prison is, it's not a place of rehabilitation, it's a place of punishment for wrongdoing, then how much more will the God that made us believe in uh, justice and truth and righteousness and punishment? And God's prison is a place called hell, and you really don't want to get it in that place. You want, to, you want to repent and trust in Christ, because I'd rather fall on the face of the sun than fall into the hands of the living God, be in my sins on judgment day, and damned in hell. What a horror beyond words. Absolutely. Absolutely. That uh, if we really look for justice, whether we are atheist or theist, and we always demand justice, and hell and heaven are those justice, right? If you do wrong, if you, you know, do something against God, you deserve hell. It's not God is sending you, that you are already on that way of going hell, right? And justice should be done, because that's how God has created it. That's how God is, love and just, right? Yeah, yeah, and there's one other thought here too, is that a, a judge doesn't send a criminal to prison. Hmm. A judge merely carries out justice. justice. That's all he does. It's the crimes that send the criminal to prison, crimes taken there, but the judge just sees that justice is done. And God won't send people to hell. Our crimes will send us there. God will merely carry out justice on judgment day, and that's a fearful thing. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a good example. So, uh, I mean, I hear you, just you going on the street. So tell us about your experience and how did you get that confidence? I mean, if I talk about myself, I cannot go out public. I would like to do one-on-one -on -one evangelism instead of going to the streets. So many youngsters would like to ask that, how do you get that confidence? Definitely it's a God's work. God has given you that boldness. But what persuaded you to go and talk to strangers on the streets? You mean in... in groups like open air preaching or one-to-one -one? yeah open air open air preaching as open you air. yeah well the way i see it is if you're in a lifeboat and you get to reach out and pull one person into the lifeboat that is just wonderful you save one life wow but imagine if you had a rope where you could pull 20 people into the lifeboat at once they're all drowning you throw out the rope and just pull them in one by one what a wonderful thing that would be so open air preaching is one-to-one -one, but with a bigger crowd um, the thing that scared me most about one-to-one -one when I first started was getting a crowd and having an anecdote or something that will get their attention. That's very difficult. I did that for about 20 years. But then about 30 years ago, mm, I did it for about 10 years. Then about 30 years ago, I started using trivia to get people's attention. And I just asked things like, what's the capital of France? Anybody know? You get it right, I'll give you this dollar bill. And people would say, Paris. I said, that's right. You get the dollar and let's give them a big hand. Somebody else. So what's the capital of Germany? Yeah, that's correct. Here's a dollar for you. Sonny, what's your name? Tommy, here's a dollar. You got it right. That makes people laugh. And then after a crowd gathers, because I'm giving away money and that's very unusual, 
I say, who would like to go for $5? And someone puts their hands off. So if you're a good person, you get $5. If you're not, give you $5 anyway. So jump up on the box and let's see if you're a good person. That has been huge for me because anyone can ask trivia. I don't have to get nervous. I don't have to ask thinking, is this anecdote going to work? Am I going to get a crowd? Because this is tried and true. People either love God or they love money. So the way to get the world's attention is to talk about money and perhaps give some away. When you give away about $10 or $12, it's not too bad. And uh, to, to, have people, to have people stop and listen and have goodwill when they listen is such a blessing. One-to-one uh, -one, or with our YouTube channel, which has just got 158 million views, which so encourages us, I use my dog. There's my dog, Sam. He gets on my bike. I wear sunglasses. He wears sunglasses. And I just ride up to people and say, hey, uh, my name is Ray, YouTube channel. 150 million views want to do an interview and they say hey i love your dog what's his name and i tell them the name get to know them so he's my bait when i go fishing for men so that's been huge for me i wouldn't go witnessing without my dog yeah that's a good uh, i mean that's a good uh, i mean say way of approaching people that you take your dog and you ask the quiz that who knows this capital and that's how people engage and that's how you get to talk with them among these other strangers that's great so moving on to this uh, last question which i actually ask every guest that uh, what advice would you give to the young christians those who are in this internet age where other philosophies and cultures and worldviews are sound compelling how to differentiate between right and wrong knowledge and how to stand firm because other worldviews are really compelling you're asking how to reach them or how to be strong as a christian yeah i mean see uh, there are other informations on the internet, right? If you go to the Google. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's one key that solves that problem 100%, and it's the fear of God. If you are, are an idolater, that is, you have a wrong understanding of God's nature and character, you won't fear God. One thing that drives me crazy or really upsets me at the same time is that some people treat God as a buddy. They'll say things like, Oh, I was really angry at the Lord this morning. And I think, what? Are you crazy? Go and play with Fort Lightning, but don't get angry at God. What are you nuts? Don't talk like that. And the fear of God is a wonderful thing to have. You see, when David lusted after Bathsheba and then committed adultery, and he didn't fear God. If you fear God, you will not look at pornography because, not because it's not pleasurable, of course it's pleasurable, but because you know the eye of the Lord is in every place beholding the evil and the good. Um, if you have the fear of God before your eyes, as the Bible says, you will be careful what you say, you'll be careful what you listen to, what you look at, what you believe, what you think about. The fear of God will keep you from evil. It'll keep you from going in places your sinful heart wants to go. And it's the fear of the Lord that drives me to reach out to the lost. The Apostle Paul said, wherefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Wherefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, you know, some people might say, well, that's not a good motive to fear God. Oh, yes, it is. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus said this, fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards do no more. But fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Fear him. We tend to read over that and not think very deeply about what Jesus said, but you listen to what he said. Fear not him who has power to kill your body. Think about that. You're lying in bed at night and you see your bedroom door open and you see a man come in and he's wearing a mask and he pulls back a knife to plunge it into your chest. 
I can't describe how terrifying that would be. Your heart would beat through your chest, you'd break into an instant sweat, you couldn't even speak, you'd be so frightened, terrified. Well, Jesus said, if you're in that scenario, don't fear him who has power to kill your body. What's he saying? He was saying that scenario compared to fearing God is nothing. That's nothing to compared to falling in the hands of the living God. He said, sin is so serious, if your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. If your hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away, rather than go to hell with an eye or with a hand that causes you to sin. So cultivate the fear of God and you say, how can I do that? Well, get rid of every image of God, of God being a buddy, and read scripture with an open heart. Read scripture where, and even in the Old Testament, it's very frightening how the wrath of God fell upon people because of their sin in, in thousands, hundreds of thousands. Read about Ananias and Sapphira, or read the book of Revelation, and let the fear of God fill your heart and say, Lord, let me fear you. Let me ponder the path on my feet. Let me have the fear of God before my eyes because I don't want to end up in hell. And that's what Jesus said, lacking fear of God will do. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so if you don't fear God, you haven't begun to be wise. So that's my advice to any young person. Fear God, obey the commandments. That doesn't mean you have to earn heaven, but just don't commit adultery. Don't lust, don't lie, don't steal, don't blaspheme. Don't even think about it. And uh, keep, your, keep your eyes on Jesus. Read his word daily. Uh, say to yourself, no Bible, no breakfast, no read, no feed. Put the Bible before your belly and you'll never go wrong. And right in the front of your Bible, this wonderful quote from somebody in past years, he said, this book, speaking of the Bible, will keep me from sin and sin will keep me from this book. And the second you begin lusting after any woman, pornography, whatever, unclean thoughts, you won't, want to open, you won't want to open that Bible because it'll accuse you and you'll be like Adam and you'll want to hide from God because of your sin. So don't let that happen. No Bible, no breakfast, no read, no feed. Best advice I can ever give. Yeah, that's a really uh, wonderful advice that cultivate the fear of God and uh, hate sin, read the Bible because Bible is going to tell you what is right and wrong. And the quote you said that uh, this book will not let me sin or this uh, sin will not let me read this book, right? And also, uh, one more quote, quote I read somewhere that uh, if you really want to know how bad you are, then open the Bible. Then, yeah, so... That's a great quote. I like yeah. that. Yeah, so thank you, Racer, for giving your time for this podcast. I really appreciate it. It was a wonderful Thank you talk. for having me. God bless you. Mm -hmm.